That kind of worship puts everybody in a spirit to hear the Lord, hear the word of the Lord. And there's just something when you sing songs that have that phrase, holy, holy, holy in it, just brings the presence of God. I'm not sure why. I told you last time we did something like this. Maybe it's because that's what's happening around the throne. Holy, holy, holy. The angels and the elders and all the created beings are falling down before the Lord. And it says they're saying, holy, holy, holy. So when we say that, we're repeating them. And then there's the verse that God inhabits the praises of his people. So around his throne, there's worship and praise all the time. And when we begin to worship and praise, it brings God's presence into our midst. And something that, that hit me for myself, but maybe it's for you, a question. It could be an ouch question. We don't want Pauline to miss this. She doesn't want to miss any ouches. How much time during the week do you spend intentionally, actually worshiping the Lord? Worshiping and praising him. Is Presley going to speak with me again today? I was hoping she would. That hit me. I read my Bible. I try to live according to the ways of the Lord. I try to make right decisions, but God challenged me. How much time do you actually spend intentionally worshiping me? And yet in his presence, there's constant worship and praise. Maybe, just maybe, that's one of the reasons we don't experience as much of his presence as we'd like to. Because we're not worshiping. He inhabits the worship and the praises of his people. That's for free. That's not part of the sermon. You ready, Presley? Ready to go? Introduction and brief review. Continuing in our series through Acts, but not for too much longer. Last week's text, Acts 26, 24 through 32, and last week we completed chapter 26. There's only two more chapters in Acts, 27 and 28, and today we'll take the first 12 verses of, of 27. But a brief reminder, a review for us, Paul's trial has ended. The results were not exactly what Paul had hoped. That had nothing to do with him being acquitted had nothing to do with him gaining his freedom. That's not what he was after. It had everything to do with the fact that nobody turned to Christ. That's what he was after. Agrippa, do you believe? I know you believe. Nobody got saved during that trial. That's what Paul's intention was. Nobody that we know of, at least. Nobody came to Jesus. It doesn't say they did. Although you just never know. We don't have the history of all those lives that heard Paul's testimony, heard, heard Paul's um, defense. But at the very least, Paul fulfilled his God-given assignment. Paul testified boldly and unashamedly. Boldly and unashamedly of Jesus. Before kings and queens, rulers, dignitaries, Ordinary folks, King Agrippa was there, Queen Bernice, Governor Felix, Governor Felix earlier, Governor Festus in this, this particular um, arena, 
Lysias, the Roman commander, the Jewish high priest, Jewish religious leaders, many others. They heard Paul's testimony of Jesus during his defense. Now the trial is over and Paul is off to Rome. Would you stand with me, please? And my reader, Stacy, if you'll come forward. And Stacy's going to read Acts 27, 1 through 12. Is that correct? Yep. Okay. It was decided that we would sail for Italy. Paul and some other prisoners were handed over to a Roman commander named Julius. He belonged to the Imperial Guard. We boarded a ship from Adramidim. Adramitium. Okay, that too. Adramitium. It was about to sail for ports along the coast of Asia Minor. We headed out to sea. Aristarchus was with us. He was a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day we landed at Sidon. There Julius was kind to Paul. He let Paul visit his friends so they could give him what he needed. From there we headed out to sea again. We passed the calmer side of Cyprus because the winds were against us. We sailed across the open sea off the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia. Then we landed at Myra in Lycia. There were commanders found a there, the commander found a ship from Alexandria sailing for Italy. He put us on board. We moved along slowly for many days. We had trouble getting to Nidus. The wind did not let us stay on course. So we passed the calmer side of Crete opposite Solomon. It was not easy to sail along the coast. Then we came to a place called Fair Havens. It was near the town of Lycia. A lot of time had passed. Sailing had already become dangerous. By now it was the day of atonement, a day of fasting. So Paul gave them a warning. Men, he said, I can see that our trip is going to be dangerous. The ship and everything in it will be lost. Our own lives will be in danger also. But the commander didn't listen to what Paul said. Instead, he followed the advice of the pilot and the ship's owner. The harbor wasn't a good place for the ships to stay during winter. Most of the people decided we should sail on. They hoped we would reach Phoenix. They wanted to spend the winter there. Phoenix was a harbor in Crete. It faced both southwest and northwest. Thank you, Stace. Stacy was not my original reader. My reader is not here, so she just came up and read that spontaneous. I told her there were a lot of hard words in that passage and a lot of names of towns. She read it anyhow. Thank you, Stacy. Today's title, Off to Rome. Today's purpose, at least in my opinion, what I think God wants to do, God wants to even more so, even better equip us. God wants to position us for effective ministry in our culture in your neighborhood, in your family, in your workplace, wherever you find yourself. We're on 24-7, you know. We're on 24-7. There's never a moment where there might not be a chance to witness. God wants to better equip us and position us for effective ministry in our culture. He wants to teach us something today. And He wants to teach us something regarding our mindsets and our attitudes as believers. 
the mindset and the attitude that we should have towards life in these days. Especially as we deal with the world, the flesh, and the devil. These three enemies, these three scriptural enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil, they try to disrupt, they try to distract, they try to hinder kingdom work. Now, there is a way out. No worries. If you're not really living full out for Christ, you probably won't have too much trouble with those three enemies. They'll probably pretty much leave you alone. If you're not fully committed to living for Christ, you probably don't have to listen today. God is speaking today to those who are committed to him who've given their lives to him and want to live to serve him full out. Let's begin with the exegesis. When the time came, we set sail for Italy. Paul and several other prisoners were placed in the custody of a Roman officer named Julius. Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica, was also with us. We left on a ship whose home port was Adramitium on the northwest coast of Asia. It was scheduled to make several stops at ports, along the coast of the province. Notice first again the, the personal pronouns, we and us, they're, bold, they're in bold type. Luke, who wrote the book, the author of the book of Acts, and also the author of the Gospel of Luke, he was with Paul. It's uncertain whether Luke was with him during the trial, whether he was in that arena. It's uncertain if he was one of those who could visit and minister to Paul when he was in jail. But it's not uncertain he is now back with Paul for this trip to Rome. He's part of Paul's ministry team as they set sail for Italy. As far as we know, only Paul, Luke, and Aristarchus are mentioned. Aristarchus was a Gentile convert from up in the Thessalonica, Thessalonica, Greece area, who's been with Paul on all these travels. They're mentioned specifically. There may have been others with them, but this much we know. Paul had two companions as part of his ministry team. The next day when we docked at Sidon, Julius was very kind to Paul. He let him go ashore to visit with friends so they could provide for his needs. Just two thoughts here from this passage, from this verse. Sidon, that remains an important city in Lebanon, the country of Lebanon, the nation Lebanon today. Sidon is the third largest city in Lebanon. 80,000 people live within the city limits. 250,000 in the larger metropolitan area. In Arabic, they now spell and pronounce it Sayida, S-A-I-D-A, although many still call it Sidon. That little bit of tidbit is for those, first of all, geography buffs, but also to let you know these things did not happen in some far-off fantasy land planet. They happened right here on Earth. Many of these places still exist today. Sidon is one of them. Damascus is considered the oldest. It's considered the oldest continuously inhabited city in the world, Damascus, Syria, where much of this stuff happens. Julius, he was the Roman commander. He was assigned to guard Paul and the other prisoners. He was very kind to Paul. On this trip to Rome, Paul had much favor and he had much freedom. Next verses. Putting out to sea, we encountered strong headwinds, made it difficult to keep the ship on course. We sailed north of Cyprus between the island and the mainland. 
Keeping to the open seas, we passed along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, landing at Myra in the province of Lycia. They should not have been allowed to name those cities those names and then expect us to have to read them <laughs> 2,000 years later. Right, Stace? There the commanding officer found an Egyptian ship from Alexandria that was bound for Italy, and he put us on board. Not much needs to be said from, this, from these two verses, three verses here. Luke is just giving the details of the voyage. He says they hit some turbulence. They had to change course. Then for some reason they had to change ships. He's just giving us the details of this voyage. Perhaps, though, they needed a sturdier vessel for the sailing conditions, as we'll see as we move through chapter 27. Up till now, though, not a bad trip at all. What are you laughing at, Pauline? <laughs> not a bad trip at all, but one of those infamous book of Acts, but, B-U-T-S. Did anybody read ahead? Well, then we'll just say not a bad trip at all up till now. In today's, for us today. Next group of verses, we had several days of slow sailing. Then after great difficulty, we finally neared Nidus. The wind was against us, so we sailed across to Crete and along the sheltered coast of the island, past the Cape of Salamone. We struggled along the coast with great difficulty, finally arrived at Fair Havens near the town of Lycia. We had lost a lot of time. Keep that in mind. We had lost a lot of time. The weather was becoming dangerous for sea travel because it was late in the fall, and Paul spoke to the ship's officers about it. From September 11th to November 11th, there's no sailing in the Mediterranean in that part of the sea, in that part of the world. It's just too dangerous. The words in bold type, and I've given you this hint in the past, if you look at the words that are in bold type, type, they're the words or phrases or thoughts that I'm usually going to, on which I'm going to comment. The words in bold type, slow sailing, great difficulty, the wind was against us, we struggled with great difficulty, we had lost a lot of time. Keep that in mind for the application. We had lost a lot of time. The weather was becoming dangerous. This voyage is getting increasingly more difficult and dangerous. And you begin to get the feel that this voyage is not going to be the cruise that they hoped it would be from Caesarea to Rome. Again, for the geography and history buffs, the town of Lycia, it was located on the southern coast of Crete, which is an island south of Greece. They had blown way off course. They're nowhere near Rome right now. They left Caesarea for a few-day trip to Rome, they're nowhere near Italy or Rome right now. They see in Salamone, they're no longer cities. They're only archaeological sites. Fair Havens is still a city, though it goes by a different name. Last two verses that we'll cover. Men, he said, this is Paul, I believe there's trouble ahead if we go on. Shipwreck, loss of cargo, danger to our lives as well. But the officer in charge of the prisoners listened more to the ship's captain and the owner than to Paul. And since Fairhaven was an exposed harbor, 
a poor place to spend the winter. Keep that phrase in mind. Most of the crew wanted to go to Phoenix, farther up the coast of Creek, and spend the winter there. Phoenix was a good harbor with with only a southwest and a northwest exposure. I guess if you're seafaring, you know what all that means. I know the Susquehanna River, but that's about it. Nothing about the Mediterranean. I used to know the channel down through the rocks on the Susquehanna River. I don't know if I'd trust that anymore. Joe, do you remember that? You know, between Columbia and where those islands and the deep water is, it's all rock. And there's a channel through there. And most Columbia kids growing up, you know that channel. I don't know if I trust myself now to try that or not. Paul is sensing trouble ahead, serious trouble, which would include loss of property and loss of life. It doesn't specifically say Paul has this from the Lord, at least not at this point. Later, he does hear from the Lord about the situation. At this point, he just expressed his opinion and his sense to the captain and the crew, but he was voted down. That's the end of the exegesis. Short and sweet, 12 verses. Luke just giving us the details of the voyage. We want to move on to the application for us today. What can we take? When you're reading Scripture, especially when it's history and narrative and those types of things, you got to be looking for what can we take from that and apply to our lives today. Scripture is not just an academic exercise. When you read Scripture, God is speaking to you. From the facts, from the narrative, God is giving us today principles by which we can live. Sometimes they're very veiled, and sometimes you really have to dig to find them. But God wants that. He wants us coming to him and digging into his word and seeking him and searching it out. And God does tell the man who cares. I mentioned that book quite a bit. It's an A.W. Tozer book. God does tell the man who cares. God does not hide himself from us. God does not dangle a carrot and then pull it back and make us go after it. But God does want us to put effort into seeking him to find out truth and to find out direction, to find out what he has for us. Any amens on that? Thank you. Thank you. Hallelujah. Okay. Even got an hallelujah on that. I want to call attention to two phrases for the application. The first one is, we had lost a lot of time. Paul and his companions were getting a little antsy with the circumstances and how long this was taken. We know from studying Paul now for all these verses, he wasn't the most patient man. He wasn't the most laid back man. They had lost a lot of time, and they wanted the captain and those guys to know it. The other phrase is, spend the winter there. It's mentioned twice, actually. And I'm just guessing here, but my guess would be that wasn't good news to Paul. That's not what he wanted to hear. He did not want to spend the winter there. Where did he want to be? Where did he want to be? Everybody. Where did Paul want to be? He didn't want to be on the coast of Crete in some small harbor town. Spending winter there would be at least a minimum three more months before they could even set sail again for Rome. Make it even longer until he finally arrives at Rome. So this is what I think God wants us to see and pull something out of for ourselves. I'm hoping at least. 
Again, for Paul, the trip is getting longer. Further delay, further postponement, further difficulty, further adversity, further disruption, further distraction, further things that were not expected coming into his life. Does that sound maybe a little bit like your experience at times at least? My experience? Paul desperately wanted to get to Rome, and he just kept hitting all of this adversity that hindered him. Listen to his words to the church at Rome in his epistle to them. Romans 1.13. Please don't understand my failure to visit you, friends. You have no idea how many times I've made plans for Rome, but something has always come up and prevented it. See, the church at Rome didn't have the advantage we have of reading the book of Acts. They didn't know how often Paul was trying to get to them and what kept coming up to stop him. Circumstances, situations just kept arising, seeming to make it impossible for him to accomplish what he knew God's will was. Have you ever been in that situation? Something always came up and prevented it. Yeah, we, we can affirm that. We have the advantage of reading the book of Acts. Often it's been human persecution. It's been humans that have opposed Paul and have been hindering him getting to Rome. Other, other times it was just circumstances of life and, and travel. And this time it's the weather. Something always comes up, prevents me from getting to Rome, Paul's words. When he sailed that day from Caesarea, probably knowing what he's already been through, there was a, at least a little suspicion that I don't think I'm just going to go from here to there. That doesn't usually happen. But my guess is also he, he didn't expect all these things that have come up. And now he faces three months wintering somewhere that's far from Rome. Many of us have experienced that in some way or another, some form or another. Maybe not to the level of Paul, but we've had our share of running into these shut doors and, and brick walls and, and circumstances and situations and whatever that just prevent us from doing what we believe we know is to be God's will or what we at the very least strongly desire to see God do. And we just keep running up against it. There's always something popping up. There's always something that keeps us from experiencing God's will or makes it different than what we thought it was going to be. That keeps us from getting to where we thought we were supposed to be, where we want to be. I wish I had a nickel for every time someone has called me or texted me and said, I won't be able to make it. Something came up. And it's often the most absurd thing that prevents, disrupts, and distracts from kingdom work. I just want to give us a word along this line. Um, sort of deviating now, and it doesn't really apply to Paul, but it does apply to us in the church today. If Satan knows 
He can bring something into your life that will deter you. He will bring it into your life every time. Resist the devil and he will flee from us. Until we finally wake up and say, wait a minute, I've seen this before. Every time I try to, this happens. And then I don't get to. From as simple as having your devotions to maybe becoming a part of a huge ministry God wants to do. But Satan just knows us. He's a student of human behavior and he knows decisions we'll make. So he just brings this thing into our lives. And we're like, oh, I, I, text pastor, I can't make it, pastor. I was going to sign up for this, but I don't really, I'm, I'm not going to be able to do it. I wish I had a nickel for every time I heard that, I'd be a rich man. Can I just be bold and blunt? We need to toughen up. Church needs to toughen up. Church needs to wise up. You've seen this before. Why are you falling for it again? Hub, I've seen it before. Why am I falling for it again? Why am I allowing it to disrupt what God wants me to do? To hinder me? To keep me home? When this is where I should be? We're not to be ignorant of Satan's ways. It sometimes makes me very angry, very angry, to think of Satan gleefully wringing his hands and saying, thwarted God's plan again because of a decision we made, a wrong decision we made. And I do it, and I hate myself when I do it. Today, God wants to further teach us what our mindset, what our attitude should be in these times, when these things come about, when they affect our life, the delays, the opposition, the distraction, the interruptions, the requirements on our time, the adversity just seems to pop up so regularly and keep us from doing the things that we feel God wants us to do, that we think we should be doing. Here's the point. Here's the principle to ponder today. Thinking in the context of the delays, the opposition, the distraction, the requirements on our time, all these things that pop up, the adversity, in those times when we seem to be being hindered from doing God's will, as Paul would easily be able to see his set of circumstances, hindering him from getting to Rome, what then are we to do? It's on the screen. This message may seem to flip-flop from this side to that side. I wasn't sure how not to let that happen. I'll be seeming to talking about this and I'll be seeming to talk about that. But in those times, we must learn to wait on the Lord. But that can be deceptive. What does that even mean, to wait on the Lord? It's a scriptural concept for sure. It's all through the Bible. But what actually does it mean? And actually, the practice of waiting on the Lord has fallen into disrepute disrepute. We don't really wait on the Lord much. By nature, we are reactionary. We react to news that we hear. We react to circumstances. 
We react to all those things that we've been talking about when they come into our lives. We react to them. We're reactionary. We make rash, unthought out, unprayed over, uncounsel seeking decisions. When we hear news, when things come into our life, we react. That's who we are. King David, been reading about him in our Bible read. He got himself into some serious hot water with the Lord for that very thing a number of times. Because he reacted and he didn't inquire of the Lord. He didn't wait on the Lord. He reacted and he made decisions out of his own understanding. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean into your own understanding, your own ability to figure it out, your own ability to decide what's right. Scripture calls us over and over again to wait on the Lord, to wait patiently on the Lord. Listen, Paul knew that he was going to Rome, no question. We've seen that. God told him he was. God made it clear, plain. No doubt. But God had the plan. God had the, are you listening for this word? God had the timing. God had the plan. God had the timing. Paul did not. So the question for him, and now the question for us, what are we to do when we thought we were going to be here or do that, and everything's going against that? But we know God said that. What are we to do? We're going to look at scriptures that carry this thought of waiting on the Lord because that's the answer. We are to wait on the Lord. But it can be deceiving. It can be confusing. The Hebrew word for wait is translated by a number of English words throughout scripture. So to capture its full meaning, we're going to look at verses that have a number of those different translations of that same Hebrew word. Waiting to us implies passive. Scriptural waiting on the Lord is not passive. It's patient, but it's not passive. There's a lot of action. There's a lot of activity while we're waiting on the Lord. So English waiting doesn't really capture the full extent of the Hebrew word that's translated wait on him, we think, okay, that means I'm just waiting for the Lord. That's so far from what that word means. In the waiting, there is a, a, a hoping for, like not being moved off course. They're staying the course. That's a strong sense of the word waiting. There's a fully trusting him, not wavering in what he said. There's a, there's a looking for in the waiting. Like Paul's still searching how maybe he can get to Rome. He doesn't want to push against God's will, but maybe how he can get to Rome without having to wait. So you're looking, you're searching, you're, you're seeing if there's an open door. You're not just sitting back twiddling your thumbs. But all during that time, you are fully trusting in him, you are fully hoping in him, and you are not moved off course. Paul was never moved off course through any of this. Rome was the objective. And to Rome he would go and he knew it. Don't be moved off course. This word that's translated weight embodies a sense of solid, unwavering hope. Looking for, searching, observing, 
We are supposed to work in the King James Version. We are supposed to walk circumspectly. We don't use that word anymore, but it's a great word. Circumspectly. It means when you walk with the Lord, you are constantly aware of and observing your circumstances. Because God works in your circumstances. God gives direction. One of the ways, one of the main ways, God gives direction is through your circumstances. Circumspectly. Yeah, it's good old-fashioned, old-school 1800s word, but it's so meaningful. We shouldn't be walking aimlessly. Well, if God wants to get me there, he'll get me there. God wants to get you there, but if that's your attitude, there's a good chance you won't get there. You have a part in this. God always have a, has a part, and you have a part. And I have a part. We have a part, I should say. And the other sense, again, of that word is fully trusting while you're waiting, as we wait. To us today, wait means passive. Don't do anything. The biblical concept of waiting on the Lord is not at all passive. It is patient, but it is not passive. So watch for these words that you hear me mentioning. Watch for these concepts as we go through the following scriptures. In each verse, the highlighted word in English is a, translating, is a translation of the exact same word in Hebrew. So it's the same Hebrew word, but in order to fully understand it, we have to use a number of English concepts to get it, to grasp it. As has been our practice, you can just sit back. You can just let the Word of God speak. There are so many scriptures we could use. I just stayed mostly in the Old Testament. Remember, this is instruction for what our mindset and what our attitude should be when we face all these things that pop up that just want to try our patience, that just want to make us think maybe we misread God, make us want to give up. Sit back and hear the word of the Lord. I am confident, Psalm 27, verses 13 and 14. I am confident I will see the Lord's goodness while I am here in the land of the living. Wait patiently for the Lord. Be brave and courageous, yes, Wait patiently for the Lord. Psalm 33, 19 through 21. He rescues them from death. He keeps them alive in times of famine. We put our hope in the Lord. He is our help and our shield. Psalm 37, 34, put your hope in the Lord, travel steadily along this path. Steadily, not reactionary, no rash decisions, steady as she goes, stay the course, resolved. Boy, these are some quality traits that are so greatly lacking in professing believers in the church today. Resolved, determined, not easily moved off track, not ramming ahead unrestrained, not dragging behind frustrated and morose, complaining, depressed, giving up. Letting God control the circumstances, yielding to his direction, waiting on and trusting in his empowering and his grace. Making the most out of every twist and turn. Think about that. 
making the most out of every twist and turn in the journey. Why am I so discouraged? Psalm 42, 11. Why am I so discouraged? Why is my heart so sad? I will put my hope in God. I will praise him again, my Savior and my God. In other words, I will wait on the Lord. Psalm 40, verses 1 through 3. I waited patiently for the Lord to help me, and he turned to me, and he heard my cry, and he lifted me out of the pit of despair. He lifted me out of the mud and the mire, and he set my feet on solid ground and steadied me as I walked along. Isaiah 30, 18. The Lord is a faithful God. Blessed are those who wait for his help. It's equally disastrous to run ahead of the Lord as it is to drag our feet behind him. Wait on his timing. Be ready to move when he says move. Be ready to act when he says act. Be ready to stay when he says stay. Isaiah 40, 31. Those who trust in, hope in, wait on the Lord will find new strength. They will soar high on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not faint. When I hear believers say to me, and I find myself in this situation too, but it's still true, whether it's me or you. But when I hear believers say to me, I'm just so exhausted. I'm just so tired. I just don't know if I'll have the strength. Immediately, I think, you are not waiting on the Lord. When I feel like that, I am not waiting on the Lord. Because those who wait on the Lord, what? Renew their strength. They're vital and they're energetic. And you don't get exhausted. Look at Jesus. If anybody had right to be exhausted. Those who wait on the Lord. You want to find that fountain of youth? Wait on the Lord. Spend time with him. Be seeking him. Bring your life in line with him and his timing. If we're exhausted and we're tired and all those things I said, we probably either ran ahead of him or we're dragging our feet behind him. Because when you walk with him, he renews your strength. And there's a promise in these days that God is going to be giving supernatural, youthful strength to those who are following him and serving him, despite your age. Yeah, so if you're getting up there in years, don't even worry about it. You will serve, if you're following him, if you're waiting on him, if you're living for him, you will serve him with full strength until he takes you home. You don't have to muffle her. That's a great place for an amen right there. Thank you, Presley. She heard what I was saying, Kayla, and she was agreeing. Youthful strength, supernatural youthful strength. Oh, there's verses, man, we could go on all day. There's verses like those who trust in the Lord, wait on him, hope on him, all that stuff. They will remain vital even unto old age. Oh, you know, when my parents had Alzheimer's and and this happened and that happened. If you know the Lord and you're working with him, you don't have to be afraid that that's going to happen to you. 
You remain vital even unto old age, energetic. Amen. We've bought a, a, a bill of goods from the world that this has to happen and we need to expect it. I don't believe it. Yeah, I believe the promise. We'll see, right? What do I have to lose? What if I'm wrong? Okay. But what if I'm right? And what if I wouldn't choose to live like that? And then I'd end up like that. There's something to be said, man, about resisting the devil and resisting all these negatives that come upon us. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Promise. It's a promise. He came. He forgives all of our sins. And he heals all of our sins. If you follow me, if you walk with me, I will not put any of those diseases on you that you see in the world. Does he mean that or not? Did he write that just so it sounded good? Or does he really mean it? And that's what we have to ask ourselves, for ourselves. I can't ask that question for you. You can't ask that question for me. I have to ask that question and wrestle it through with him. Did you really mean that? And I'll just tell you the conclusion I've come to. God doesn't say things he doesn't mean. We're often exhausted, tired, lethargic, run down, stressed out because we're trying to do things in our own strength rather than waiting on the Lord. Isaiah 49, 23. You will know that I am the Lord. Those who trust in, hope in, wait on me will never be put to shame. Some verses say we'll never be disappointed. Those who trust in the Lord, those who wait on him, will never be disappointed by him. That is scripture. Habakkuk 2.3. This vision is for a future time. It describes the end. It will be fulfilled. If it seems slow in coming, wait patiently, for it will surely take place. It will not be delayed. It will not be delayed. In other words, in the positive, it will occur. Paul, you will get to Rome. If God said it, he will do it. It will happen. Wait patiently for it. Here's the thought that God is trying to convey. My thoughts are not your thoughts, says the Lord. My ways are not your ways, declares the Lord. You could put in there, it's not scripture, I'm just putting it in there. My timing is not necessarily your timing. And he has been hitting us with that one a lot lately. My timing is not necessarily your timing. Therefore, wait patiently on the Lord. Put your hope in him. Trust in him fully, unwaveringly. In these days ahead, it is imperative that we do not knee-jerk react to. It's imperative, church, that we don't jump to conclusions. It's imperative that we are not too quickly to, that we do not too quickly embrace something that has come to us, nor judge it. Things that we hear, things that come to us, and there will be a lot of that for us in the days ahead. Information reaching us, news reaching us, 
pressure coming to us. It's imperative that we don't jump right on board with the latest thing coming down. But it's also imperative that we don't judge it and say it's not of God either. There's a key word for these days ahead, and it fits in with this whole waiting on the Lord concept. And the word is discerning. The word for the church in this season ahead is discerning. We must be very discerning. We must wait on the Lord for his word to us, for his plan to unfold, for his timing and his will to be done. We're always called to walk with him. And these days ahead, it's imperative that we walk with him, very close with him, hearing from him. My sheep hear my voice. My sheep know me, and they hear my voice. That is going to be more critical for us maybe than ever it was before because there's forces that are trying to deceive and knock the church off course. You just get on YouTube and you see church leaders, well-known church leaders, attacking each other, judging each other. That's appalling. Why would you even do that? Scripture says, who are you to judge another man's ministry? To the Lord himself, he rises and falls. Worse, it's out there. We see it. Worse, if it ever gets in here, who are you to judge or be critical of another? To the Lord, they will live their lives. Now, for the leaders, I know we don't just accept everything. We don't just condone everything. There's lines that need to be drawn in leadership and there's judgments that need to be made. But for us relating to one another, who are you to judge another? Who are you to be critical of another? To complain and talk about? God hates all sin, but in Proverbs 16, there's a list of seven. The seventh one being the worst. And it says, God hates those who incite dissension among others, who talk about, complain, are critical, who turn brothers, turn Christians against each other, who turn ministries against each other. God hates that. God loves harmony, unity. Doesn't mean you accept everything that comes down the pike. That's the problem. That's the error. Well, we don't want to judge, so we just accept this. No, we know better than that. If you see your brother overtaken in a fault, then you who are spiritual, go to him. Gently, speaking the truth in love, taking heed lest you fall into the same trap. There is a place for that. That is not judging. That's out of love for one another. That's not even this sermon, so... That's another time. Just know in these days ahead, Scripture talks about Satan in a few different ways, but there's two of them that are uh, paramount. Satan comes in as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. You've been there. You felt that. Satan also comes in as an angel of light, and his demonic forces masquerade themselves as ministers of light. Much more dangerous. We know the roaring lion breathing down our neck. We're often caught in the trap of the masquerading angel of light. It's imperative in these days ahead. We seek the Lord for discernment and don't just react and rush in. We wait on the Lord. Got it? All right. Um, I have asked somebody to pray.
Pauline, I think it was you. Will you come? Rest of us will stand and Sonny will bring the band. And we will pray. Wait till everybody's settled. I saw the look on her face. Talk to you about it then. What a word you gave us this morning, Lord, and just we thank you for bringing us here this morning to hear this message, um, to understand that these words that are written in this book, even though they were written long ago, are still our instructions for today, that we can read these words and know that where is our room? Is it, is it something we're reaching for? Is it something we're asking for? But to teach us how to get to that room that we're seeking you for, Lord, and how to how to do that. Keep our eyes, Father, fixed on you, that we're not doing this on our own, Father, but if we stay in step with you in the word, Father, seeking time to worship you and reading the word and, and being patient, um, seeking you, Father, that we have direction and, and we will hear from you if we're doing these things, Father. So I pray that as we heard the instructions on how to do this, and um, I pray that you give each and every one of us, Father, the time. Help us give us that time in this busy world that we live in, Father. Help us to hear your voice, Father, as we are seeking you in the word, worshiping you, speaking to others that we're reaching out to, Father. <laughs> Help us to um, hear your voice in these times that we're um, seeking you that we're wading through the trials and tribulations that we're facing today, mm. just as Paul did. It might have looked different back then, but the things that we're facing today is probably sometimes we feel just as bad as what Paul's facing back then. So, Father, I just I thank you for gathering each and every one of us together, Father, and just help us as we walk out these doors today to, to have the strength and to look into our Bibles, Father, and... and listen to the worship music that you know and worship you father um to give us that strength that we need to push forward and and do our work that we are called to do father in jesus name i pray amen, amen. amen.